Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's turn to economics because we've got a lot of eco data this week. We've got a lot of central banks meeting around the globe. I think the Bank of Japan, the ECB coming this week along with the U.S. Bank of England next week. So a lot to chew on there from the central bank perspective. Uh, let's break it down with Liz McCormick, Chief Correspondent of Global Macro Markets uh, at Bloomberg News, and Michael McKee, International Economics and Policy Correspondent with Bloomberg News, who joins us here in studio. Mike, just want to start with you. We had the, the uh, PMIs come out. I don't, they didn't look that good to me. I mean, what do you, you know, manufacturing services, the composite PMI slowed from last month. What do you read into these types of numbers? Well, the economy is slowing, which we expected. The question is how fast does it slow? The Bloomberg, uh, most recent Bloomberg economic survey that just came out uh, last Friday uh, suggests that economists think that the U.S. economy is going to fall off a cliff starting in this quarter uh, that's, that includes July. And that's not kind of what the story the data are telling at this point now you look at a number um that's you know 49 for manufacturing the pmi is not a great number it's below the level in theory that is uh break even but uh we still see services above healthily above uh 50 and composite above 50. so things have slowed down but they don't seem to match up with what people are expecting to happen okay yet. So you're a glass, glass half full type of person. I'm a wait until the waitress comes around and, <laughs> and ask her to fill it up again. That's I mean, very we get, Jay Powell of we, you. We get G GDP numbers on Thursday and we get the latest spending numbers on Friday. So we'll have a much better view uh, by Friday of where the economy is. Unfortunately for the Fed, they're meeting Wednesday. Yeah. Well, speaking of that optimism, I wonder, Liz, if you can talk us through this uh, nirvana scenario that we're hearing about. And is that what we're going to see? Well, you know, I love Ed Yardini, but nirvana, we all want it. I don't sure, know. Right. <laughs> Sounds great. But but uh, yeah, well, I mean, clearly there is some, like Mike just said, some of the the dire predictions, many thought we might be in a recession already, haven't panned out. So the market is kind of kind of more so saying, hey, there's a possibility. We could get through this. I mean, we've got 500 basis points of tightening already. Fed says they're going to do some more. Market's pricing in a little. That Could we have this, you know, I call it the nebulous soft landing, uh, that possibly uh, the market is pricing in some easing next year, but the Fed could ease a, a, a bit, even if we're not in a recession, just to get things better in line, to normalize policy. So I would say there's still kind of a camps out there, hard landing, policy mistake from the Fed is coming, they should have stopped to the, hmm, maybe they'll pull this off kind of thing. And, you know, we'll have to talk in maybe six months and a year to see right. who was right, right? All right. So, Michael, you're the international uh, guy here. Uh, Bank of Japan this week, ECB uh, this week, Bank of England next week. How, how does the market look at some of these other uh, international uh, national banks vis-a-vis -vis kind of what the Fed does. Don't forget the Bank of Ghana, which raised rates today. Oh, good to know. To 30%. Oh, my God. <laughs> Inflation yeah. is running at 42.5% a year wow. there, so they're okay. a little bit above that 2% <laughs> yeah. target. Yeah. <laughs> but I, the Fed is driving everything in the sense that we are the by far biggest economy, and it's the most influential central bank, and it is... It, where the U.S. rate settles is what drives currency trading. So everybody's watching that. And then there'll be um, perhaps more eyes on, at this point, the uh, ECB. They're in the sort of same situation as uh, the Fed. Christine Lagarde has to and company have to decide whether they're one and done. They're going to do one more, and then they will hold and wait and see what happens. Or do they 
promised to do a series of rate hikes still because they're still concerned about where inflation is. The Bank of Japan, the consensus is that a huge change is coming, the end of yield curve control, but not now. Right. So it's a question of when do they get there. What will be interesting with the Bank of Japan is to see what their economic forecasts are because there's the, the reporting from Bloomberg is that what we're going to see is a big increase in the Bank of Japan's inflation outlook. They're going to raise their inflation view, which is uh, kind of the opposite of what the other central banks want to do, but it's what uh, the, Jap the Bank of Japan wants to see happen. So as we head into this kind of uh, triple header of central banks, which do you think we'll learn the most from in terms of where we're heading? Well, um, it depends. And this is a good question for Liz, because it's a it, it's a matter of interpretation. Uh, what everybody wants to know from the Fed and the ECB is what next and how specific are they going to be about what next? Whereas the Bank of Japan is not going to really do anything and probably won't say a whole lot. But if they do raise their inflation forecasts a lot, that's going to set up a lot of talk about what do they do next? How, mu how much closer are we to the end of yield curve control? So Liz, again, what's kind of the market? Does, does the market feel like this Federal Reserve is still behind the curve? I mean, what? When you, when you look at the trading week to week, month to month here, it, it's felt like for a long time the market wasn't listening to the Fed. Yeah, I think, well, I think the market has kind of thought the Fed was behind the curve on both ends. Obviously, late to the party to realize inflation wasn't transitory, so they were slow to tighten, slow to stop their quantitative easing. Um, and then there are some who feel like Fed is going too far. Like the market is only priced for one more quarter point hike. We know the Fed's dots have said two. It'd be interesting to see if Chairman Powell, which he's been really, you know, kind of doubling down and saying to whoever he talks to, Congress, whomever, there's two more hikes coming. That's what a lot of our officials are signaling. Does he tone that down a little? I think he clearly doesn't want to, just like Christine Lagarde, like Mike was saying, they don't want to kind of gin up animal spirits too much to mm -hmm. say we, we're done, we've won the battle, because they're pivotal, uh, you know, at a not a key inflection point, but getting there. But inflation is b above both their targets, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe uh, somebody called it end game communication. Like, <laughs> you know, how far are we? Kind of, how do we kind of gingerly get us into, even if it's higher for longer, that they get to wherever and they stay there for a while, that's the next thing. But I think that's what they're trying to say. We're getting closer, maybe more work to do, but we're not, we're not for sure done. You right. know, they don't want to signal that. And I think that's what the, why the market isn't priced for two hikes. When you said, uh, does the market think the Fed is still behind the curve? I was thinking, well, it depends on what day of the week it is. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, and it's such a great point that they were too late to the party and now people think they're too late to leave, it sounds like. Uh, Liz, based on what we were saying with Mike earlier about this triple header this week, what are you going to be looking at the most? Well, I, I probably, since I live here, have to say the Fed, um, because, I mean, like, they do move all boats. I mean, for a while, like Edna Kern and I were talking the other day, for a while, we all thought maybe BOJ is going right. to be the most exciting this week. And then we had that great reporting from our folks saying, not this time. Like Mike said, that's like a waiting on Godot. They, they, we keep thinking that yield curve control change, tweak, whatever is coming. So I really think it's the Fed. Um, yeah. You know, how do they signal? Does... Is there a way they can, you know, get the market to price up a little bit? I think, you know, Powell wants as much optionality, but this bond market really kind of wants to rally. <laughs> so we'll mm -hmm. see how how he does with that. And Michael, just for our, our, our friends who maybe don't have a, a good understanding of kind of inflation in Europe, why is it so much worse there, it seems like? Even though everybody's over there traveling, you know, um, that should well, help. Well, it, it's based on a few different things, especially energy has been a, an issue there. Um, and their indexes are constructed a little bit differently from ours. So they're not directly comparable, but um, they do show uh, the, the, the problems that we've had. And they have had uh, much bigger rate increases with some of the pattern bargaining they have that people are worried about. But uh, can it come down fast? Well, inflation's coming. I mean, uh, energy prices are coming down. So as long as that happens, um, inflation should come down. And when you look at the PMI to take us back to where we started for Germany, 38. Yeah. Eight, yeah. Um, for manufacturing, that suggests you're going to see some uh, price pressures ease. Okay. Great stuff. Great having you both in here. I looked up and Liz was right there. I was expecting <laughs> Zoom, but Liz was right there. Liz McCormick, Chief Correspondent of Global Macro Markets with Bloomberg News, and Michael McKee, International Economics 
and policy correspondent, uh, both of Bloomberg News. Joining us both here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio and on, on Monday, by the way. Incredible. I mean, you, usually on a Monday, you get the Bloomberg salespeople because they have their big morning meeting on Monday. <laughs> so all the kids are and in. And you get us. And we get some of the economists. <laughs> And, and that's how it works, I well, guess. Well, Liz is doing an incredible Q&A session, I think, tomorrow? Oh, or is today, it today? pressure's on. Oh, I'm, you know. so, I'm going to be front row. I can't wait. <laughs> oh, that's friends. internally for all internally. you, all you yeah. news people? Okay. We'll see if I survive that hour of Ask Me Anything. <laughs> it's going to be Liz McCormick getting the, the benefit of her experience. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Madison Mills, Paul Sweeney here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Big, big earnings week. Technology coming into focus. I'm talking Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, a bunch of others. And I tell you what, these companies better deliver it. NASDAQ is up about 34% just year to date. So mm. anticipation in the market for really strong performance. Let's see if they can deliver. Dan Ives, he always delivers. Dan Ives is a managing uh, director and senior equities analyst for Wedbush Security. So Dan, a big week for tech. Uh, what do you expect? I think it's get out the popcorn. I mean, in my opinion, we're going to see an uptick in IT spend. I think cloud's going to be strong from the likes of the behemoths, Microsoft, as well as Alphabet. And I think it's all about AI spend. I, we're starting to see monetization sooner rather than later. I mean, Paul, my, in my opinion, bright green light doing tech, I think up 12, 15% second half of the year. Wow. Dan, how much are you going to be looking at capital allocation when it comes to overall IT spend? Companies that are uh, portioning off a larger chunk of that pie specifically to AI. And are there any companies that could be hurt or dinged uh, because of that allocation? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, that's why right now the trophy case at the top of the mountain is in Redmond. I mean, if you look what Nadella and the team have done, I mean, they are in pole position to gain more and more share of budgets. We believe next year we're hearing 8 to 10% of budgets AI-driven. This year, less than 1%. Okay. And that's, that's the drum roll. That's the Super Bowl, what everyone's waiting for. The actual quarters are almost the backstory to really the forecast and, and the outlook going into next year. How about the companies that rely upon digital advertising, uh, Dan? That's kind of been, you know, a wobbly business, even, uh, even, you know, even amongst all the other key growth drivers in technology. So we're talking about Meta and and you know Alphabet that really rely upon digital advertising. How's that looking right now? I mean, we're seeing upticks. I think stabilization is going to be the sort of word that we hear from Meta, from Alphabet, and you combine it all. We're starting to now see a less cautious spending environment. You know, they'll, they'll be, you know, probably toned in terms of how they talk about things over the coming quarters. But I think digital advertising, we're seeing stabilization, cloud and uptick, and overall IT spend. I think you saw that from Arva and IBM. I view this as sort of a table pounder view into tech uh, this week. I do not view the reactions of Netflix and Tesla as a barometer for what we're going to see this week. That's why, in my opinion, it's getting the popcorn ready, and I believe it's going to be a strong week for tech. <laughs> okay, so if it's not Netflix and Tesla, Dan, what is the bellwether that you've looked into to indicate how happy you're going to be able to be this week? It's tomorrow night. It, when you look at Alphabet, you look at Microsoft, that's that's the key. That's the, the, that's the messy moment for earnings for tech because of what we ultimately see in cloud, in digital advertising. And if you look, going back to the NVIDIA guidance heard around the world the last quarter, now we start to see the upticks in spend in terms of the forecast, no better. Everyone will be listening to Nadella and Microsoft's call. That is gonna be the one that they not just tech, but all the streets gonna be focused on to see what we're seeing monetization of cloud within a trillion dollars incremental spend next decade. 
Hey, Dan, you know, the uh, NVIDIA results, I think it was last quarter that just really shook the market, reset the market, woke up people like me who really wasn't paying attention to this AI thing. How much of the AI budget over the next several years do you think is going to be incremental tech spending or maybe just taken from other parts of the stack? Why we think about 30 to 40 percent incremental. The rest will be taken from the stack. That's why the Cisco's, you could argue the Intel's, maybe the HP's, obviously will back and so on the hardware side. But I think it's incremental because in our opinion, it's a 1995 moment. It's an internet moment. Companies are actually changing their view of spend and two letters have, have all changed in terms of AI. And that's why unless you have a telescope, you're not seeing a recession out there. And I think that's gonna be a narrative we'll hear in the next week or two. So if it is 95 all over again, how are you not worried about a bubble, Dan? Well, first off, I think if you look at the actual valuations, it's we're not talking pets.com moment. In other words, these yeah. are now the stalwarts that ultimately I view. When I look at Microsoft, I could argue this is a three and a half, four trillion dollar company in the next two to three years. I think the difference when you go back to the bubble in 99, 2000, I mean, a lot of that was hype. This is different because the fundamental and the real business cases are there. I'm not saying, oh, there's not going to be froth and losers that fall by the wayside. But I believe this is an AI gold rush. It's real. And that's why this week, I think the bears go back into their hibernation mode hmm. after how little win last week to what's been a brutal six months for him. Hey, Dan, in the context of this AI um, discussion, um, it's going to accelerate once again this week with these earnings. How does Apple fit into an AI discussion? I mean, they are not going to be on the outside looking in. And we've talked about it. I mean, they're spending almost the equivalent of what Microsoft did with OpenAI internally on AI. This is all the drumroll to what I believe. I mean, German's hinting at a bit. To their, They're going to roll out AI within their ecosystem. I ultimately believe it's an AI app store for Apple, mm. which I believe could add 30 to $40 per share. And again, Cook continues to play chess while others are at the kids' table playing checkers. Wait, say more about the AI app store. What are you anticipating? A separate app store that's going to be AI-driven developers. I believe it started off with Vision Pro in terms of, you know, actually building a separate almost app store. It's going to be AI-driven. Health, fitness, AI apps will be in that app store. And then for Apple, that's just going to be a whole nother opportunity to further penetrate the base that has an unparalleled install base. And I believe right now the valuation is not reflecting what I call AI multiple. And that's why I believe this is a $4 trillion mark cap by 2025. Dan, you mentioned the headset, and this earnings call is going to be the first time folks have the opportunity to ask Apple about that headset. Do you think they're going to uh, get killed for investing in a headset when people have moved on to focusing on AI? Because ultimately, it's not about the headset. Because my view is that this is really just to start AR, VR to what ultimately is going to be the next vision around AI. And that's going to be integrated more and more within that ecosystem for Apple. And I think ultimately investors are focused more on iPhone 15 where we think ultimately units are going to be higher and this is a mini super cycle. That's the long game. Right now it's all about developers build out for what I view as sort of the next evolution of the Cupertino ecosystem. Hey, Dan, I just want to talk Tesla for just a moment because Bloomberg News, uh, Stefan Nicola uh, is out with a great story saying Tesla is lapping Germany's automakers in the global EV race. And so, you know, we heard from all the big uh, German manufacturers over the last several years how they're going all in on EI, but Tesla delivered almost 890,000 cars in the first half of the year. That's more electric vehicles than Volkswagen, BMW, Mercedes, or Porsche combined. So how do you think about Tesla and just kind of their competitive position as everybody else tries to ramp up? I mean, it's Tesla's world, everyone else paying rent. <laughs> if you look at electric vehicles and from a scale and scope perspective, battery technology, supercharger, and I ultimately believe FSD AI. That's why I think last week, okay, you got the knee jerk sell off after just the parabolic move this year. I, don't, I, I think this is still early to middle innings of the broader Tesla story building out. And this EV green tidal wave, the $5 trillion green tidal wave, 
there's been many winners. The three win three area code GM for the European players, a lot of the China players. But ultimately, if you look, the biggest beneficiary is going to be Musk and Tesla. Really quickly, Dan, are you team uh, Twitter formerly or, or now X formerly Twitter or team Threads? Oh, I stay Twitter. And again, I go back to Threads. I'd rather eat broccoli for the full day than be on Threads. <laughs> Very good. There Love you go. It, Dan. Conviction, if nothing else. Dan Ives, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Appreciate getting that roundup on tech because, again, a big, big earnings week here. Uh, for a lot of industries, and most notably tech, and is the biggest sector in the S&P. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk about some of the industrial companies and because they're reporting numbers today but you know I looked at the PMIs today for the uh, and the manufacturing PMI came in at 46.2 uh, that's not good on the number fronts a it's below 50 suggesting contraction mm-hmm. uh, and it was below the consensus of 49 and it was below uh, just kind of in line with last month 46.3 but mm-hmm. I want to start there and then we'll branch out to some of the yeah, manufacturing companies that are reporting uh, later this week. Brooke Sutherland joins us. She covers all of that industrial stuff for Bloomberg Opinion, and she joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Brooke, what did you think when you saw the uh, manufacturing PMI today? Where, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a manufacturing recession. Is that kind of what we're dealing with? I mean, this is a continuation of a trend where we yep. have seen um, you know, numbers from the PMI that have been indicating a contraction in manufacturing activity. Um, I think the question is, there's a bit of a divergence between those numbers and what we're hearing from the industrial companies, which are still very uh, bullish on the demand that they're seeing. Um, They, you know, are talking a lot about sort of structural tailwinds that will keep um, people buying industrial equipment for the foreseeable future. Those include electrification of everything, um, the sort of wave of factory investments that we've seen in semiconductors, electric vehicle, um, and other types of manufacturing. And I think the question for investors is, you know, whether this slowdown that we're seeing just reflects a normalization of supply chains, because you had a lot of people that were over-ordering just to get their place in line um, and to make sure that they could get some kind of components coming in the door, Uh, and whether we may be seeing the other end of that or if we're seeing a real demand slowdown. And I I don't think investors have made up their minds, and I think it depends on which company is reporting, honestly, the way in which uh, people view their orders numbers. It feels like 3M is the name to watch this week. Is that what you would say? Uh, sure. I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. We've got yeah. just about every industrial company reporting <laughs> earnings this week. So 3M yeah. is interesting. Um, you know, I don't really view them. They used to be an industrial bellwether. I don't really think of them as that anymore, just because they have so many idiosyncratic problems, um, including PFAS liabilities. They have an ongoing uh, legal issue with combat um, earplugs uh, that they sold to the U.S. military that veterans mm-hmm. are claiming were uh, oh, defective. Man. And so, you know, they have a, a, a variety of issues that, you know, investors will be looking for updates on, but they do still have their industrial businesses. Um, and it will be interesting to see what's happening there. These tend to be early cycle businesses. And so they tend to be on the front lines of economic swings. So if we are seeing a slowdown, you would see it hit there first before some of the longer cycle businesses like aircraft engines um, or wind turbines or things like that. This is a Tom Keen kind of trivia question. Mm-hmm. What does 3M stand for? You know, I don't know that. Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. John Tucker knows that. Yeah. Um, well, it used to be. No, they officially changed the name. The 3M. To 3M. Yeah. So. But they're based in St. Paul, Minnesota. St. Paul's a great town, by the way. I love St. Paul. Uh, great hotel there. I can't think of the name. But the stock has been brutal. Trailing, you know, over the last five years, compounded annual decline of about 9% versus the S&P 500 up, up almost 12%. So that's just a brutal name. And what's this? I mean, it's a $58 billion market cap company. What's the problem with those guys? What's the story? You know, and you, it's, you have to somewhat feel bad for the current management team because the issues um, largely do not have to do with right. uh, decisions that they made. They have to do with uh, the way in which 3M was managed um, you know, decades ago. Yep. Uh, so the company is a legacy manufacturer of PFAS, which are known as forever chemicals because they linger in the environment. Uh, and in the body, they've faced numerous legal challenges um, over PFAS and the uncertainty 
of what happens there has been a big drag on the stock. And then, as I mentioned, there's also the uh, military yep. plugs issue, um, which was the last thing that the company needed, but remains unresolved. Um, and you know, there we're talking about estimates in the range of several billion dollars right. to try to settle that alone um, before you even start talking about PFAS. All right. 3M, Minnesota Mining Manufacturing, one public, just some trivia, you can get on the Bloomberg terminal with the DES function. October 1st, 1978, uh, who took them public? Kidder Peabody, which was an awesome firm back in the day. Some of the best bankers, best analysts, uh, great M&A practice, uh, really good stuff. All right, GE. I kind of still consider them a bellwether. I don't. Mm. They're not the bellwether they used to be. What are you looking for here from GE? What's the? What are investors going to be looking for? Sure. I mean, well, they're a significantly simpler company yes. than they <laughs> used to be. Um, from back in the Kidder Peabody days, but right. uh, they um, so they've already spun off their healthcare business, and then they are speeding toward uh, eventually spinning off their uh, energy businesses, and so that includes their gas turbines, but also their wind turbine business um, and some other myriad assets that get kind of grouped with that. And once they're done with that, they will essentially be an aviation company. Um, and investors are already treating the stock as if you know that spinoff is a done deal. Um, and I think it's just a simpler story and people are better able to focus on that core aerospace business and the uh, growth opportunities there. Brooke, one of the fantastic stories that you have for us on Bloomberg Opinion recently is about uh, ties to China for some of these names. And uh, you specifically talk about Chinese ownership of Cirrus Aircraft, I believe. Uh, can you talk to me about how the China story is impacting some of the names that you cover? Sure. I mean, I think it is a big issue. And I think um, the current environment is a minefield for CEOs, even those who have had long standing relationships um, with Chinese entities. Um, and so Cirrus makes uh, private planes. These are more like hobby aircraft um, or used for charter flights, that sort of thing. And they were acquired by a, a subsidiary of a Chinese company in 2011. Before that, they were owned by a Bahrain um, investment arm of mm -hmm. a bank there. Um, and so they've been under foreign control for a very long time, but the company is getting more scrutiny. It filed to go public in Hong Kong um, in June, and that's just drawing attention to the fact that it is, in fact, owned by a subsidiary of a Chinese entity that is subject to sanctions. Um, and you're seeing this happen in all types of industrial businesses where you know, long-standing relationships are coming under fresh scrutiny. There was also a report in the Wall Street Journal earlier this year about a Rockwell Automation Software Development Center in China and whether that might pose some sort of national security risk. And I really think to operate in China, if you are an industrial company, you need to have a, a siloed um, enterprise there. And a number of companies have already taken efforts to set this up. Um, Emerson sources 96% of its components for its Chinese products within that region, with the rest coming from other um, East Asian countries. It doesn't run that business with expats. It uses all um, local prim employees primarily. Um, and I, I think you're just going to see more and more of that. So when you Talk to the industrial companies that you do all the time about China. Is it central to their future as either a, a source of raw materials or an end market for consumers? How do they view China over the next five to ten years? Sure. I mean, I think they're uh, carefully, yeah. just given what a um, political um, issue it is, but it's a very important market for these companies. It's the reason why they're there in the first place. Um, and so, you know, one of the interesting things about Cirrus, the, the private aircraft maker, um, is that you know, the entity that owns it has joint ventures with um, just about every aerospace company yep. under the sun. And most of them are focused on right. the development of the C919, which is the COMAC challenger to the Boeing 737 MAX and the Airbus A320. And the reason why those U.S. companies have those ventures right. is because they want to compete for this business. That, yep. you know, if this is sort of the, the future of China aviation, it's an they important place there. for these companies to be. All right, Brooke. Great stuff, as always. Brooke Sutherland. She's a columnist covering industrials uh, and deals for balloon. Opinion. Appreciate getting a few minutes of your time. You're listening to the team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's check in with uh, somebody who really does this stock stuff for a living. She's been doing it for a while now. She's got some experience. Anne Maletti, head of active equity at Allspring Global Investments in what town? Milwaukee. <gasps> Milwaukee Another again. one. I'm telling you, it's, it's my go. theme here. Nice. Uh, and thanks so much for joining us here. We're, we're getting into the teeth of the uh, earnings cycle here. What have you s seen and heard so far? And what are you looking forward to going forward? It's a big tech week of earnings. 
it has been a big tech week. Nice to, nice to talk to you again, Paul. Um, look, so far, earnings for the most part have been pretty strong. But I think what our teams are looking at is what does the tail end of earnings season look like? And I think we'll see some volatility this earnings season. I think that was somewhat expected by most investors. Um, you do generally see some softness this quarter, and that's what we're expecting to see. But, you know, from what we expected all year, there will be differences from the bottom up, company by company. And that's why we think it's a great environment to look at companies specifically and not just, you know, pick a sector, pick, a, pick an industry, pick growth, pick value. It's time for individual company selection right now. So, Anne, what is the market going to move on more this week, the Fed decision or some of these tech earnings? <laughs> that is a great, um, that's a great question. I, I do think it's not going to be on the Fed decision itself. I think we all really do believe and there's kind of a consensus opinion that we're going to get that 25 basis point increase. But I do think what, you know, what we don't know is if we're going to get the interpretation of a hawkish tone or a dovish tone from Chairman Powell. And that is the million dollar question out there. I, you know, I guess I'm in the camp that he's still going to continue to be a little bit more hawkish. And, you know, even though we have seen some signs of weakness in the economy, the jobs data and the employment data continues to be pretty strong. And that's going to continue to make him fairly cautious and want to give him optionality that we may not be done or that the Fed may not be done raising rates. And so I think the market's going to move a little bit more on that than on tech earnings. Hey, and uh, you and I have known each other for a while, so it will not surprise you to know that I missed out on owning those big seven, magnificent seven names. So now I got some work to do for the remainder of the year. Do I look at maybe some smaller mid-cap names? I mean, that, that requires a little bit more homework on my part, but is that where you think some opportunities might be? I'm, Paul, you know, probably put me in the same camp. Um, I do think there is a, a really good opportunity for investors out there. And, you know, I think this is, this is something that we've been focused on a lot because for investors – who want to invest more broadly, who want to stay in the market regardless of what the economy is doing. And by the way, history would suggest that is the right thing to do. If the market broadens out, and it should, there are real opportunities down cap. And if you just look at the fundamentals, what Paul, you spent a lot of time doing, and I spent a lot of my career doing, free cash flow is a really good metric of quality. And if you look at the free cash flow margins and the highest quintile of free cash flow margins in those smaller cap names, they're trading at a 20% discount to the counterparties in large cap. And that's a, that's a historic discount by any measure. And, you know, if you can buy quality at that big of a discount and even at a discount relative to their smaller cap peers, that's the area of the market that our investment teams are finding some real value in today. And I think where investors can be rewarded, there are strong balance sheets, there's, you know, that free cash flow will give them protection, even if things get a little bit more challenging in the economy, even if we head into a recession. So, Anne, how much of the boat needs to be filled with small caps at this point, given what you're saying about some of the opportunities there? You know, the allocation decision is really a personal one, and that's where it's a little bit more challenging for me to have a personal opinion. Um, I, I certainly do have an opinion of my own, but I think for investors, it you know, small cap can be a little bit riskier, but again, it's the area, it, it, it's just where you want to invest within small cap. I don't think it's an area that should be ignored. Growth can continue to be really good in small cap companies, even when growth pulls back within the economy. So it's an, it's an area that investors should not ignore. But I'll leave the allocation decision up to um, investors themselves. The tactical decision is, I would just say, don't ignore the area at all. Hey, and do you folks at, at Allspring, have you, are you still talking recession? Is that still in your outlook or have you kind of tabled that a little bit? 
Yeah, you know, I I think we're still in the camp that the recession risks still do linger. And, I, you know, the reason for it is six months ago, you know, we were only at 3% interest rate. And the, there's a lot of rate increases that have happened since then. And there's a big lag effect to the impact of increasing rates. We have yet to see the full impact, whether that takes six or nine months to fully feel that, you know, we haven't seen it. And so we're still cautious about how bad the total impact will be. We already know we saw, you know, some breakage in the system with what happened with the regional banks earlier. Um, I don't completely think that it's over. And again, we're not done with rate increases. We have one coming this week and then still a question about what happens after that. So it's not off the table for us. That being said, you don't want to be out of the market completely. We already saw the ramifications of what could happen with that. And so, you know, the economy and the market are two different things. And investors just have to keep that in mind. All right. And thanks once again uh, for joining us. Anne Maletti, uh, head of active equity at Allspring Global Investments. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, let's go to Mattel here. This is a beneficiary. They own the whole Barbie thing. Um, Mattel stock. Uh, it's up 1.6% today. Nice move. It's up 20% year-to-date. That's nice. It's got a market cap of $7.6 billion. Uh, let's break it down with the analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence who covers Mattel, the company, the stock, Lindsay Dutch. She is an analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Lindsay, give us a sense of kind of what this means for Mattel here. It's obviously a great day, a great weekend uh, for uh, the movie and what it means. For, but what's it really mean for the company? Yeah, thanks, Paul, for having me. Um, so th this movie is a big deal for Mattel. Barbie is one of their biggest brands. It peaked at $1.7 in 2021. It was off about 11% last year. There was sort of weak demand for Barbie. So coming into this movie, there was a lot of uncertainty, you know, and concerns about demand for the dolls. But I think Mattel did a really great job in, in terms of hyping up the movie. And I think that could be a catalyst for the second half and really a rebound for the company um, in terms of toy sales, but also the royalties that they're going to get from the movie and, and related merchandise and things like that. So there's a real possibility of strength in the second half, you know, with this big movie debut. Lindsay, I'm curious about, and I know you haven't seen the movie, but there's uh, definitely a sense of Mattel calling themselves out a little bit when it comes to some of the uh, potential, uh, what some would view as mistakes they've made in terms of uh, Barbie's impact on how young women and girls are viewing themselves, etc. I wonder, is there any potential uh, negative impact for Mattel because of some of those messages? Uh, or is the extreme success of the Barbie movie just going to be a boon for them? So I agree. I mean, I think that the brand has had ups and downs, you know, throughout its sort of life and, and creation. I think Mattel was going into this movie. They knew it was critical to, you know, reinvent the brand a little bit um, and, and sort of ease some of those concerns that we've had. Um, so I think that was, you know, it is a pivotal a pivotal moment for the company and whether they can really, you know, change the attitude around Barbie. But there are also so many people who are nostalgic about the toy, about the brand. Um, and that adult collector's market is huge and it's growing. It's a big piece of the toy market. 
Um, and so I think that there's a lot more opportunity than than risk, um, especially like seeing the numbers coming out of this weekend and this debut. Lindsay, talk to us about the toy market in general. Um, how how big is it? The toy market in general. How big is it? Does it what's the growth characteristics of kind of the toy business? Because now it seems like every kid's got a phone in their hand. I know. Um, so, you know, the, the the toy market in terms of dolls, if you think about dolls, that's more like a three to four billion dollar category. Mattel is a clear leader. They've always been a dominator in that doll category because of Barbie. They also own American Girl. Ah. When we think about dolls, you know, growth was astronomical, astronomical in the pandemic. And it really started to come off in 2022. Um, you know, there was weak demand. We had over inventory issues, you know, for a lot of their key suppliers, if you think about Target and Walmart. So there was a huge pullback in the fourth quarter last year, really hurt results for Mattel and as well as other peers. Um, and, and the beginning of this year, you know, it is going to be challenging. Their sales were down in the first quarter. I'm expecting sales to be down again when they report their results for the second quarter. But like I said, this is really a second half story for the company and really what can happen with this growth going into the back half. So in terms of the category as a whole, you're talking about sort of like low to mid single digits growth, you know, in this next couple of years. Mattel is typically a market share gainer. So, you know, we would typically expect a little bit faster growth coming out of Mattel. Well, and you mentioned American Girl. Uh, they've also got Hot Wheels under the Mattel brand, which has increasingly been taking up a bigger piece of the revenue pie. Uh, do you anticipate that uh, allocation changing this coming earnings season or earnings results because of the Barbie movie? So um, I think... So Barbie has always dominated um, in terms of Mattel's revenue mix. You're right. Hot Wheels is gaining. They were about a $1.25 billion business last year compared to Barbie's $1.5. Um, I think that, you know, heading into second half, you know, success of the movie could really put Barbie back, you know, sort of on top. I think Hot Wheels is sort of closing that gap here in the first half. Um, they're... I think Mattel's history does sort of, you know, skew towards that doll category, but the vehicles has just had a couple of really great years. And when we saw growth slow in dolls, vehicles picked up. Also, action figures has been a really big uh, growth driver for them. It's much a smaller business, but we're, we are seeing growth in that category. But I do think coming into the end of this year, you know, we'll see Barbie be uh, still be a bigger business for Mattel than Hot Wheels. But that gap is definitely a lot tighter than it was historically. All right, Lindsay, as a former media analyst myself, I have to ask this question. Is there going to be a Barbie sequel? <laughs> what have we heard from the company? Um, they, have they said anything? They have not said anything, but, you know, their CEO has a background in TV and entertainment. And I think, you know, he truly believes in sort of that halo effect, you know, linking entertainment and, and movies and, and everything that we stream today, you know, to physical toys. So I wouldn't be shocked. And the return on the investment in the Barbie movie is going to be considered a positive for them when history looks back on this moment, right? Yeah, so I think there's, you know, some um, element of the movie baked into guidance, which is, is pretty bleak for the year when we think about Mattel. But I think a lot of it is not baked in. Um, I think, you know, the the profitability, the margin on, you know, when they license out that Barbie brand, the B, the pink B, you know, they had, um, you know, a, a partnership with Gap that they did, you know, all that merchandise sales, all the licensing out of things like that, it is huge on the margin. Um, and I think that a lot of that stuff can come in better than expected this year. But again, sort of just rebuilding that love of Barbie and the brand going forward. All right, Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. Lindsay Dutch, she's an analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She covers uh, some of the consumer space retail uh, as well as the REITs. But uh, today it is all about the co her coverage of the company Mattel. Again, a stock up uh, nice today on the news, up 20% year to date. Uh, see if they can monetize this Barbie mania.
going forward. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. One of the names that's actually driving the performance uh, this year, as it typically does, is our good friends adding Cupertino Apple. Um, Mark Gurman joins us. I don't know why, because he's a chief technology off correspondent, <laughs> something like that. I, he, li- I liked CTO. He's C- basically the CTO. Okay, we'll go with yeah. that. And he covers uh, all the tech stuff out there in Silicon Valley. Uh, Mark, I haven't replaced my phone in I don't know how long, man. <laughs> What's How does Apple think about me? I've had this phone for, I don't know, three or four years. What do they have to do to get me to kind of buy a new phone? Yeah, so... I think your first question is, what do they think of you? Uh, they, uh, they, okay, so they like you a little bit because you have an iPhone. They like you a little bit more if you're buying apps and subscribing to things, but they're not in love with you because you don't have a new one and you right. haven't bought for the last three or four years. Uh, what they would prefer is if you were upgrading annually. Yes. What do they have to get you? What do they have to do to get you to upgrade? Well, I'll just be completely honest with you because I've had similar thoughts as well. So the iPhone 10 came out in uh, 2017. That's six years ago. So this is going to be the iPhone 15 is going to be the sixth generation phone uh, since the iPhone 10. God, honestly, it's not too different. The phone doesn't operate uh, that differently, right? The big difference would be the overall performance in the speed. And the reason you would want to upgrade at this point is because the phone at this point, if you have an iPhone 10, probably feels really sluggish and it feels really behind, particularly uh, on the camera. Or you've dropped the phone enough times or you have dents uh, in the steel band around the phone. Uh, you have a crack in your screen or maybe you have a big glass crack or shattering on the back of the phone, right? right? So that's really how they get you to upgrade over time as the phone feels sluggish and damaged and such. This year uh, is going to be an interesting year. This is going to be the first time in maybe three years where they're doing anything uh, of significance, okay. right, in my opinion. So the iPhone 15 Pro is going to be quite an upgrade this year. It's going to have a titanium uh, case around the edges. That's instead of stainless steel. On the biggest and most expensive phone, the 15 Pro Max, it's going to have something called a Paris scope camera that allows for much deeper zoom using hardware that means the camera lens can actually move within the phone to get closer to the image in order to provide better zoom versus the digital zoom we have today which you can zoom in but you get a bit of a blurry picture Mm -hmm. they're also changing the charger to more of an industry standard going from the current lightning charger uh, to what's called USB-C and there's also going to be a much faster processor and better battery life on the top end phones the low end phones will get some of the iPhone 14 Pro features like the dynamic island, that new area at the top of the phone, uh, as well as a better camera on the back. So how much of everything you're talking about played into Apple's decision to ask suppliers uh, to keep the production of iPhone units in line with uh, last year at 85 million units, which I I found just a little bit confusing because phone sales have been declining over the past eight quarters. So what did you make of that decision? Yeah, so 85 million would mean uh, flat for the third year in a row. The 13 was a very small upgrade. The 14 was a small to modest upgrade. Uh, I would say the 15 is not a um, generational upgrade, right? But it Hmm. is significant. And so I think if let's look at it this way, right? If it was a minor update this year, I think units would actually uh, be declining given the overall economy and the overall smartphone market and the tech market uh, in terms of sales and buying power and such, not the stock market. Um, I think the fact that it is a significant upgrade across the four models this year is why they're able to keep it flat. You know how sometimes uh, Apple says that, you know, their revenue has gone down, but in a um, all things uh, current environment, it actually would have been up, right? right? So it's something similar to that where uh, given everything going on, they're able to stay flat because the upgrade is so significant. Mark, talk to us about, I guess, the latest thinking coming out of Cupertino on China. Uh, I can't think of a company that has any more ties, both in the supply chain and source of raw materials, as well as an end market uh, than Apple does with China. What's their latest thinking about how they're approaching this over the next several years? Well, I'll tell you uh, one thing and then I'll answer your question. It feels like the the rhetoric around China and Apple working with China and the U.S.-China relations, uh, while that's still there, it feels like it's an idea or a reality, I guess, that has calmed down in in recent months, right? Things were really teetering 
uh, a year ago, six months ago even, and people were really pushing for Apple to get out of there. Uh, that is no longer the case. Now, to answer your question, nothing has changed over the last year or so. Um, the idea or the plan is still to diversify production as much as possible outside of China. They're building up more lines for the iPhone in places like India. Uh, they're expanding the iPad to places like uh, Vietnam. A lot of Mac production has moved to Vietnam uh, and Malaysia. Right. So they're doing what they can to move out of, of China, except for one product. Uh, it's the iPhone, the one we were just talking about. And in order to get the iPhones in those 85 million quantity that you need to ramp up and be built in two months time and to be deployed globally over a three month period, you just can't. And by the way, at the quality they need to do so, you just can't do that outside of Foxconn in China at this point. Um, so that's really what's keeping them there. So, Mark, we don't get Apple earnings until next week, but a uh, slew of tech names reporting this week, making up about 40% of the market cap of the S&P in terms of the names we're going to hear from. Which name are you going to be listening into to indicate uh, how the Apple story may evolve? Or are the tech names we're hearing from this week completely separate from the Apple story? I mean, I know this week we have Meta, we have Alphabet, we have Microsoft, right? Any other big ones that I'm missing? Uh, some of the social ones, like we've got a snap this week, some of that stuff, yeah. but not necessarily a bellwether for you know, Apple. I would definitely not uh, include Apple in that group. They have a way of either outperforming or underperforming that group, right? So I think they're a bit of an outlier there uh, in terms of, you know, earnings calls that I'll be paying attention to uh, definitely will be meta. Right. I would like to see uh, how their, you know, metaverse play, as they call it, is continuing to go. I want to see what the losses are like. Uh, I want to see what they have to say about the Apple product. I want to see if they have uh, any more commentary on that. I want to see uh, what's coming out of Alphabet in terms of their hardware sales. I want to see anything they have to say so far on their new Pixel Fold. Right. That thing is eighteen hundred dollars. I have had one for several weeks. I don't think it's particularly great. Uh, I also don't think people are particularly buying them up. So I want to pay attention to see what's going on there. Uh, one other interesting news item for this week is going to be Samsung Unpacked. That's going to be their new phone launch event that's happening uh, in Korea. And they're going to be announcing their latest uh, phones there, which obviously will be going up against Apple's new devices in the fall. So I'll be interested to see how those all compare. So it's actually going to be quite a busy week and uh, a lot to pay attention to. Hey, Mark, just real quick, 20 seconds. Apple recently completed their just amazing new headquarters uh, in Cupertino. What percentage of their employees show up there on mm. a given day? Ooh, what percentage show up on a given day? You know, I, I the headquarters seats about 12,000 to 15,000 people. And then there was a bunch of peripheral buildings uh, around there in the Cupertino, Sunnyvale, larger Santa Clara Valley, Silicon Valley area. Uh, I would say the majority of employees are coming in three times a week. Uh, yep. That's typical. Most employees are there. Uh, they better, to they better be happy employees. The stock's 50% this year on a compounded basis, up over 30% over the last five years. I, they they got to be happy. I mean, I say get your wealthy keister back in the office. That's just me. <laughs> All right, Mark Gurman, chief correspondent, technology uh, for Bloomberg News. He's based out there in Silicon Valley. He's drinking the the Kool Aid. Why not? I mean, Apple stock has just been a just a tank, just been amazing, and it continues. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.